Welcome to the Nine Marks Ministries Leadership Interview and Seminar Series. This series is dedicated to equipping and encouraging church leaders and congregations in the application of biblical principles in the local church. Sponsored by Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., the Nine Marks Ministries Interview and Seminar Series features in-depth discussions with and presentations by pastors, theologians, and church leaders from around the world. After the interview, please listen for more information about Nine Marks Ministries and its mission for local church health. We are delighted to have here with us today uh, Ken Jones, a special guest from Compton, California, and also with us today a member of Capitol Hill Baptist Church here in Washington, Thabiti Onyabwile. Uh, Thabiti, it's good to have you with us on one of these interviews. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And Ken, thank you for coming all the way across the country. Just for this. Well, okay. I know you were here doing something else, but it's good to have you anyway. Now, Ken, before we were taping, you and Thabiti were just about to get into a conversation about something. I had asked Thabiti what he did. And Thabiti, you want to just explain briefly for the listeners what it is that you do? Yeah, basically do research and craft model policy, state policy, that affects uh, kids and families, particularly low-income uh, kids and families and and also other kinds of vulnerable populations, whether it's kids that get involved in juvenile justice or child welfare systems uh, or kids with uh, particular mental health, mental illness kinds of issues. And, Ken, you were going to ask him something. Yeah, my question was... But I want to remind you, Ken, this is not the White Horse Inn. You don't okay. just get to ask questions on this show. <laughs> I get to ask you questions because I'm interviewing you. Okay? All right, all right. I, Thank you. you. <laughs> okay. Uh, so is it like Mark May I? And well, then, yeah. kind of. Okay. No, my, my question to you was, um, do you get a chance to see up close... I'm assuming that you you work with a lot of black churches. So do you get a chance to see up close the um, social gospel element of the black church and how that is is such a big part of the black church existence? Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, Because some of the work you're right in assuming that we do in communities, particularly the community based work. Mm -hmm. uh, Oftentimes we many of foundations are interested in doing it in partnership with churches which draw them closer and closer and deeper and deeper into, um, you know, some social-related issues. Um, so, yeah, we, we brush up against that quite a bit. And okay. I'd be curious about your perspective about kind of the history of that and the health of that and the development of that. I maintain that the influence of the black church in the black community is has been diminished over the years. And therefore, it's almost a nostalgic sort of romantic affiliation. People assume, once again, they still assume that in order to reach the community, they have to go through the church. And I think there is a, there's a segment of the clergy that are trying to, to perpetuate, you know, to keep that myth alive. But I think the, the influence is diminishing. Would you say that's I, the case? I would agree with that. And I, I, would, I would probably go a step further and say the extent to which pastors try to occupy that space in my experience uh, in doing this work, those have tended to be the less healthy churches. Mm. Those haven't been the strongest churches kind of theologically. Those haven't been the strongest churches in terms of the health of the, the fellowship, the membership, uh, the strength of the preaching, uh, preaching not particularly biblical <coughs> necessary. So, um, yeah, I, I would say there there is that vestige that remains among uh, a good number of, of clergy persons. Um, and uh, And some of that, I think, is just kind of continuing down that stream, not not having uh, perhaps more biblical sense of the church uh, and, and what church life can be or ought to be uh, and and how how even if you 
have a bit towards kind of social issues and want to be involved in social issues. Uh, my sense is historically is that where the African American church has been strong on social issues, it often has grown out of a clear theological understanding. Uh, so whether we're talking about uh, abolitionism in the, in the early days or other kinds of issues, education movements, et cetera. Now, I, I guess the only thing I would question on that is the, um, s- well, how solid the theological base was to begin with. Well, we, we would probably agree on that. Yeah, I, I would say that, that there has been more informed involvement, but I don't, I don't think as a consensus uh, there has been a strong theological base in, in even in the best social uh, days of the church. I, I, would, I would agree with you on that. Well, let's come back to that. If you want to know more on that, you can uh, go to the Nine Marks website and look at the text of a Henry Forum that Ken Jones did for us on the history of the African-American church, which uh, I'm right. willing he'll do tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, where are you from? Uh, Los Angeles, California. I'm right. And the first of my parents' four children to actually be born in California. And how did you come to Christ? Did you grow up in a Christian home? I grew up in a home, well, I grew up in a home where both parents were believers. When you say Christian home, there's, I think, particular... Believers in the James 2 sense? No, they were, they were strong, but they were not. And the reason I, I'm, I'm fudging on this, mom and dad, is, <laughs> is because the church in which uh, we were part of was not strong on doctrine. Mm-hmm. My father grew up in a uh, uh, primitive Baptist church, which is actually Calvinistic in mm-hmm. terms of this theology. The yeah. However, they didn't baptize uh, children, and so they only baptized. They, they wouldn't baptize you until you were at least 18 years old. He moved to California. <laughs> well, he moved to California before he turned 18. He actually joined the Air Force uh, prior to turning 18. So, so it was easier the, to join the Air Force than his church. Exactly. <laughs> well, he had to lie in either way, but he, he did join the Air Force. By the time he came to California, he was uh, he hadn't been baptized. My mother grew up in a, in a free will Baptist church. And after I was born, they came into fellowship with a, an Arminian Baptist church in Watts at which time my father was baptized. So he was baptized into an Arminian church. And so, you know, Christianity's always been around the home. I actually professed faith in Christ at about 11 years old, and at that time I was baptized. And you lived as a Christian through high school? Pretty much, yeah. So you were known as Ken the Christian? Depending on what day of the week and what part of the town, what part of town you were in, yes. There were people that knew me as Ken the Christian. And when did you start becoming known as Ken the Calvinist? Um, this is radio, not television, right? Or no? Okay. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, I, I actually started learning more about, or learning about Calvinism, as a high school junior, I believe. Reading through, and it was in an English lit class, and I read Jonathan Edwards' "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God," which was used as a caricature of bad Puritan preaching. Well, I thought the sermon was pretty good, so it, it prompted me to study more about Jonathan Edwards. Ran across some other works of his. I had a friend who did some work who actually taught at a seminary. He was a family friend, and he um, gave me access to some, some books. And so I, I learned more about uh, Jonathan Edwards. By the time I got to college, I had a, a radical rebel Church of Christ professor 
the first day of class. And this is because you were at Pepperdine, because which is historically a Church of Christ school. More than historically, yes. <laughs> um, and, and, and so um, the first day of, of a, a Bible, introduction to the Bible class, he says, uh, burn, anybody who has a Schofield Bible, burn it. Well, I had a brand new Schofield Bible. So I had, you know, before I burned it, I wanted to find out why, you know, was it going to cost me a grade or what? So I talked to him after class, and he told me that if it weren't for that Schofield Bible, I wouldn't know beans about seven dispensations. And so we got to talking, and um, he saw that I was kind of interested in some things, and it was through him, and I took about three classes through him. Uh, it was through him that I, I was turned on to the Institutes and um, some other Calvinistic literature. And I did a teaching internship a number of years ago in Juneau, Alaska. While I was there, um, the the gentleman that was over the interns gave me a copy of J.I. Packer's Knowing God. And when I read it, it was very similar to the stuff that I had been reading, from mm-hmm. old Puritans and so forth. So I assumed that the author was dead uh, and, you know, about 150 years dead. And so a number of years later... Um, I, I get a, a brochure of a conference down in San Diego, California, and lo and behold, who was speaking but J.I. Packer. So I said, oh, he's not dead. But I saw his picture, and I thought he was about to die. So I had to go hear him before he died. And uh, from there... Jim loves listening to these interviews, by the way. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> so from there, I, um, I, I really discovered the world of Ligonier, and it was through Ligonier and my okay. association with Mike Horton, that all of it really came. So uh, R.C. Sproul's ministry. Absolutely. That's great. Now listen, since the Beatty is with us, the Beatty, can you just give us a very brief, I know you've got a really interesting testimony, a really brief summary of your testimony of how you came to Christ, and then also just like I've asked Ken, how you became Reformed? Yeah. <clears throat> I didn't grow up in a, in a, in a Christian home. Uh, my experience growing up was in North Carolina. In North Carolina. Uh, small Sorry town, North Carolina. Uh, sorry that I didn't grow up in Christian home, but from North oh, Carolina. North Carolina. Well, you know, all, all great things are made in North Carolina. You know, we, we produce basketball stars and best barbecue and all that. And tobacco. Uh, and tobacco. You certainly <laughs> produced the pastoral staff of this church. That's right. That's right. Um, but grew up in, in, I wouldn't term it a Christian home. I mean, mom, it was a war of attrition in terms of going to church. You know, moms would try periodically to get us in the church, uh, usually around Easter's and Christmases and those kinds of things. And I knew that if I could, you know, resist and fuss and fight long enough, usually about three weeks, you know, she'd give up and keep going on her own. And uh, dad never went to church, any of that stuff. It went the way to college and was introduced to Islam. And I was a practicing Muslim for about four or five years um, and started to see some real inconsistencies in the system of Islam. Um, nation of Islam or, no, or actual? Orthodox Islam, okay. though I had a lot of nation friends. Okay. Uh, that was, it was probably the nation that first started sparking questions about Islam for me because it was, for me, the introduction to uh, kind of large groups of what seemed to be kind of upright, clean men, disciplined men. Um, and what I had known of church wasn't that. I mean, the men I had known in church were soft, to, to put it nicely, oftentimes. I want to uh, piggyback on that later. Sure, okay. sure. So, so that was, yeah, so that was Thank like, you. wow, you know, and, and just kind of, they were talking about community, talking about a lot of that, that social gospel related stuff, mm-hmm. um, which was also appealing. And so I started studying Islam. I knew the nation was a cult because I'd read enough of, of Malcolm's autobiography and some other things to know where they were errant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the discipline of Islam was attractive to me. So I practiced that for about four or five years. Um, speed this up. My wife and I lost our first child. 
which was when my kind of world kind of came crashing down and was in a depression, sitting at home watching television one day, and a uh, fellow came on television and was preaching, and for the first time, he was an expositor preacher. It's my first exposure to exposition preaching. And I'm thinking, who rewrote the Bible? Who made the Bible plain? And we followed him for a while. He actually pastors a church here in D.C. We came up, and he taught a sermon called, What Does It Take to Make You Angry?, uh, which was really law and gospel. I mean, he was, he was, he was hellfire and brimstone and then the grace of, of the gospel. Uh, and it, that, that weekend, my wife and I both made a profession, um, and started to grow as Christians, as young Christians, because I was coming out of Islam and because I had felt like I would, I had kind of stumbled or fell into a lot of error theologically. I was real concerned about doctrine and teaching. And I picked up two books. Uh, at that time. One was a series of books, actually, by Martin Lloyd-Jones, his Great Doctrines of the Bible Mm -hmm. series, which was a great read. Mm -hmm. And the other was Knowing God, J.I. Packer. Uh, And, and, yeah, so it was like, I got to get more of this, I got to have more of this. Um, And I would say it was over the course of a couple of years, it's just consistently coming into good books, uh, spending time, and the Lord leading me to folk like Mark, ultimately, and others who were well-heeled in, in Reformed theology, that uh, those things came into to place for me as well. So, yeah. Now, one of the things we, we were talking about on this, on this interview, and you can tell already, is the black church and church reform. And, Ken, you've been in your church for 14 years? Yes. Uh, what was your church like when you came? Greater Union Baptist Church in Compton. Is that what it was called and was yes. it already there? Yeah, when was, was that church founded? It was founded in 1963. Why, how, what happened to found it, to start it? Um, seven deacons who couldn't get along in a church that they were in decided to start a church of their own. And they called it Greater Union? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, to show you how much of a sense of humor God has, the pastor that was there before me, his name was John Calvin. How about that? Yeah. There could be nothing more Johnish nor Calvinish about that church. <laughs> Um, and putting the names together, it was it was far from it. But when I came there, there was this. There now, was, first of all, how'd you get there? Uh, I was pastoring a church in Long Beach, which was about ten minutes away from um, where they're, they're they're presently located. And there were uh, some members from their church that that fellowship. They would come over because they were having problems over there. They would come over to hear me preach, and. Um, as circumstances had, in fact, one of the ladies, her daughter, ended up joining our church. And they were having some problems, and one thing led to another. The pastor was gone, and they asked if I would come over and help um, teach the Bible studies, and I preached for them on a number of occasions. Uh, a number of occasions, And there were some other common acquaintances. And any, anyways, I ended up preaching over there on a number of occasions, teaching and uh I was I was presented to the nominating committee. But when I came there, they had just gone through a split. The pastor had taken a good portion of the membership, but still there were about 200 This people. is John Calvin. John Calvin. And John Calvin had taken them where? Over to Geneva? Or? Well, <laughs> it would be more like Tulsa. Um, they became very full-blown word faith. Okay. I mean, it was Pentecostal. There was And nothing. are they still in the area? Yes. As a matter of fact, he's a bishop now. Hmm. Yeah. Go figure. Uh, but must have named it and claimed it. Pretty much. So they, I mean, they had olive oil in the pulpit. There were... Uh, What's her name? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
there were deliverance lines. There was, uh, you know, this was at Greater Union when you at, came. All of this was. Wow. So you place. had some reforming work to do when you got there. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, just all sorts of stuff. It was the Pentecostal stuff, word faith stuff. All sorts of strange doctrines had come in, and people were disgruntled. But but here's something that that I think is problematic for a lot of evangelicals. We'll see moral excesses. And like Erasmus, assume that the biggest problem of the church is its moral excess. And so therefore, if we clean up the moral excess, then the church will be okay. So if we stop stealing the money and the preacher stops sleeping with all of the women, then the church is fine. But then you just have some, some moral heretics still, because there, there's still no gospel. And um, so our work was was cut out for us. It was now, brother, this is put out online. I mean, people can listen to this anytime. Okay. Are things so secure for you at your church now, 14 years later, that you can say about the church when you got there that there was no gospel there? Oh, I can say that without a doubt. There was no gospel. Uh, I think many of the people, the people that were there at the time, that are still there, would would uh, readily confess that there was no gospel that was being preached there. So, so you want to say something? No, no, go so w- when you went there, I mean, did you begin immediately preaching expositionally? Well, I've always been um, an expository preacher, but I didn't. It took me a while to um, to really get a feel for what what was going on and where the church stood. Um, I've often said that if I had known what the church was like, I probably would not have taken it. I, I had no idea how bad the problem was. I knew it was there were there were problems there, but I had no no idea of how and, bad. and I know there are churches that certainly feel that way about their pastors. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So we, we really didn't get a chance to um, to start making the changes in terms of doctrine and practice probably for about two years. But you said we didn't get a chance to start making the changes. I mean, when you come there and you open your mouth on a Sunday morning, you get to make a change immediately and that you get to start teaching God's word. If you are recognized as being a fairly decent speaker, it's possible for people to appreciate your gift mm-hmm. long before they hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All they know is they're hearing a decent sermon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it doesn't register like, oh, 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 whoa, this is what he said. Oh, if this, then that. And, and so it took a while for, for it to register. Uh, I was young at the time. I'm an old man now. Uh, but I was young. That was, an, uh, that, that was appealing. I, you know, could at least deliver a message. It was somewhat different from what they heard. But, but again, they didn't bother with the theological details of the sermon. Yeah. Well, so do you think your preaching had much of an effect on the church? Eventually it did. Eventually it did. And did you, did that, the fact that it was eventually, I mean, did that discourage you? No, I learned. I learned through that process. I learned to, uh, to take, uh, any particular, what I considered speaking gifts. And I, I had to work hard to, uh, to make that gift less, less attractive. So that the attention was given to the content of the message. Now, what would be an example of that? You, had, you, you mean you had to work to be a worse speaker? Uh, less charismatic, and I, I don't mean charismatic in the yeah. you know, but but less. Uh, for instance, I I never for, for the first six years of preaching, I probably never used uh, a manuscript. Uh, I, I had a pretty good memory. I mean, I I was on my college debate team, and you had to think on your feet. 
uh, I would prepare sermons, write it out, but then when I got to the pulpit, I wouldn't use the, the, the manuscript. Well, people started commenting on how gifted I was, at how, how I had such a gifted memory. So I started making it a point to, to be seen with yellow paste, uh, pieces of paper, and I'm turning the paper. So the attention was not on so much, you know, how, how great a memory and, and, and things like that. Um, if, if people were moved, I, I would make it a point to, to slow the pace and, and not Whip feed off of the, the emotional zeal. So if there, a lot of people who listen to these interviews are pastors or church leaders. Yes. And if there are some pastors who are in a kind of reforming situation in their church and they're discouraged because they don't see their preaching having much effect, what would you tell them? Well, I would say examine yourself. You, you want to be heard. You, you want to be heard for, for the content of, of, of the message. And so if you don't think the preaching is being heard, then you need to examine yourself. Maybe, maybe there's something, that's, something else that's getting their attention about you. But the other thing, which I did uh, in conjunction with this, is I made a concerted effort to, to do more in-depth teaching on Wednesday nights. And I became known as a teaching preacher. Mm-hmm. And that's where the foundation was really laid on Wednesday nights. Well, I'm sure a lot of what pastors need to do is just be patient. Keep doing Absolutely. it. Persevere. You know, you don't think they've heard you this first year? Preach a second year. You don't think they've heard you the second year? Preach a third year. You don't think they've heard you a third year? Preach a fourth year. Just keep preaching the word. Yeah. You can jump in any time. No, I'm, I'm curious to know more about the, the, the entire process of reform. So you came there for two years. You preached, uh, maybe not seeing the fruit that you want to see, making some adjustments in um, the manner of preaching. Um, content still strong, emphasizing content Wednesday nights. What else were you doing in terms of reform? Um, well, we, we stopped some things that were uh, hallmarks of, of black church life. For instance... But um, now already, the pre- kind of preaching you were doing was preaching that was not typical of black churches. True? Uh, false? That, that would be true. But you can get away with a different style of preaching if you're charismatic. Right. Huh. So you can, uh, Fred Price was not your typical black preacher. Mm-hmm. But what got, got the attention of the people was his, uh, his, his approach was different, but he had a, a charismatic style. Mm-hmm. So that, that doesn't... And that's true of evangelical churches generally, wouldn't you say? I mean, if, you, if, you, sure. if you've got a pastor who's kind of charismatic, he can, he can get away with just about anything. Sure, but, but I would say in, in the black church, uh, preaching style is so important. I mean, it is it is so critical that if if a person is going to step outside of that bound, mm-hmm. uh, out, outside of those bounds, he'd better have something you know real good in in his bag because preaching style is everything, um, and and uh, within that style there are are those who are more gifted than others. So so what are you telling young men to to do who are listening to you about preaching? What are you telling them to do to reform their church in their preaching? You're saying I would say you need to really reexamine your doctrine of preaching so that you're not just going through the motion, you're not just getting up on Sunday morning and giving an emotional massage, or look at your preaching systematically. I I think there's one of the things that's disturbing to me, and this is among most evangelicals and especially a lot lot of the, um, the Arminians, they read some of the best preachers in the history of Protestantism. Charles Spurgeon is still the prince of preachers. Mm-hmm. And the majority of the guys that I know that, that love Charles Spurgeon, they don't have an inkling 
of the theological commitments mm-hmm. that Spurgeon had in preaching. They love to read James Boyce's stuff, but they have no idea that James Boyce was a dyed. I mean, he was he was cast in the dye as a Calvinist and he had no problems about it. Matthew Henry's commentaries. Exactly the same thing. And, and, and people are devouring this stuff because I think our, our, our uh, contemporary preachers are in search of the next great sermon. So your church was not Calvinistic when you went there. Not by a long shot. And part of my work was on Wednesday night was to teach them the history of the Baptist Church in America and therefore give them a choice. In fact, I taught, uh, taught through Sam Waldron's Baptist Roots in America, and I gave them the choice. Okay, here are the choices. You can be either a Calvinistic Baptist or an Arminian Baptist, and, and here's where we come from, and here's where my commitments are. And this is what we will be preaching, and this is what we will be teaching. And from there, uh, we went into the 1689 Confession. Now, d- did that make you unusual for black pastors in your area? Yes. Yes, because... Now, now were, were most of the friends that you knew, or maybe even ministers that you fellowshiped with in other uh, predominantly black churches, were they self-consciously Arminian? No, I don't think many of them were. Because I know the National Baptist Convention uses the New Hampshire Confession of Faith as its statement of faith. For that matter, the progressive National Baptist churches use the New Hampshire Confession as their statement of faith. It may not mean anything. Has has anyone told them this? (laughs) It's in their hymnal, buddy. It's in their hymnal. The the church covenant? I mean, the articles of faith. Yeah, the articles of faith. The articles of faith are drawn from that, but if you ask the average one where those articles of faith are drawn from, they wouldn't be able to tell you. All they'll be able to tell you is that there are 24 articles. They don't know where they come from. Packer has this great line in Knowing God where he says you can sing the creed, but you can't say it. Amen. Exactly. Exactly. And and, and that's that's exactly what it is. I I don't think most of these guys know that those where those articles of. So so the fact that you're an African-American minister and a Calvinist is highly unusual. Yes. Yes. Very, very. And your church is now okay with that. Yes. Now our church knows that we are Calvinistic. Yeah, I snuck and, it in on them. But and, <laughs> well, it sounds like you taught it publicly is what yes, you did. Yes, I did. I did. Yeah, I taught yeah. it publicly. And does that brought you then into fellowship with other evangelical churches in your area who are more Reformed? Uh, or yes. there just aren't many? It, well, not in our area, but it brought me into fellowship with a broader group of, of pastors that were Reformed and Calvinistic. I, for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm interacting with Presbyterians. In, in fact, that was a concern of mine. When, when I became uh, Calvinistic, my father grew up in, in a um, uh, primitive Baptist church, but he grew up in Arkansas. And his only memories of, of the stuff that's hardcore reformed is with Southern Presbyterianism. And his concern was that we were leading the church in the direction of Southern Presbyterianism. Sort of the slave owner's religion? Exactly. And if that was it, he didn't want any part of it. And so when we started talking about the doctrines and and, base, and really rooting them in Scripture and showing the consistency, then he was able to understand Presbyterianism from a different mindset. So a few years ago when they moved back to uh, to Arkansas and they were looking for a church home, he, he for the first time, he considered the Presbyterian church. But otherwise, he would never have set foot in a Presbyterian church in Arkansas. So in that sense, Presbyterian churches in Arkansas, in his mind, yes. had a worse reputation than Baptist churches? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it they were viewed as being the uh, moneyed class. Yeah, well, that's true. And they were the most uh, <clears throat> most prejudiced in the areas that he came from. So Calvinism has a an even harder time among black Christians going forward than it does among other evangelical Christians in the U.S., you think? I would say so. Because, you know, you, you well know that in, in predominantly white evangelical churches, it's not that Calvinism has an easy time necessarily. I mean, there are whole denominations like the PCA. But, right. you know, generic Bible churches or certainly in my own, you know, in Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah. Or our own, maybe. Yeah. There are, uh, there are lots of churches where, man, they wouldn't give you the time of the day if you tell them you're a Calvinist. Well, and that's, see, that's the double-edged sword that you're working with uh, in, in the black church with, with the doctrines of grace. Because on the one hand, you ask, uh, you know, were, are many of the churches conscious of their Arminianism? I would say they, they are not conscious of their Arminianism, but they know that they, they consciously reject um, the doctrine of election or the doctrine of limited atonement, even though they don't know the, the whole system that it's based on, but they consciously reject those things. They don't know that by rejecting them, they are espousing a, a particularly Arminian doctrine. And in the black church, uh, especially the idea of predestination versus free will, you know, we, we fought a whole lot to get a little freedom, and, and now you want to tax my will too? So no, no thank you. I, you know, free will, I, free will is, it, it makes sense because now I can choose, and, and, and we fought a lot for choice. So I, I think those are some subtle innuendos or, or some subtle um, nuances that sort of play into the the. the the gap between Reformation and So what would you encourage people to read about this particularly, both about Calvinism and also about Calvinism in the black church? Oh. Like Calvinism generally. Somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, uh, I've never really thought through Reformed theology and stuff like that before. What would you encourage them to read? Institutes first. Okay. I mean, I know that's that's a lot of reading, but I... It's a lot of reading. Thabiti, do you have any simpler suggestions? <laughs> Pastor Ken's Institutes. <laughs> Institutes, maybe starting with the second part of it or something. But uh, um, no, I, I like the two that, that were influential for me. I mean, I like Lloyd-Jones's okay. um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of great doctrines of the Bible. And it was kind of three short volumes, small mm-hmm. volumes. Uh, and I like I like Packers knowing God. Um, that's a great not, intro. Yeah, it's a good, as an intro, as a primer. And uh, evangelism and the sovereignty. I was just going to say that. Because, yeah, that's yeah, a great yeah. one. Because so many of the concerns, you know, evangelicals, are going to have has to do with, well, what about evangelism and missions? Yeah. Yeah. And Packer addresses that head on yes. in Evangelism and the Sovereignty. Yeah. Okay, but what about particularly in a black church? Mm-hmm. If, if there's a brother or sister listening to this who's in a black church and they're reformed in their theology, becoming more reformed, but the church isn't, and let's say the guy who's listening to this is the minister in the church or, or one of the ministers, what would they read? What about Anthony Carter's new book? Which I have seen, I've not, I've not seen yeah. it to read. The Church Black and Chains. Reformed. Oh, Black and Reformed. You know, I haven't read it yet. I, I did it, a... I think it's just come out. Okay, I, I did uh, an endorsement for one of his books. I don't know if that was the one or not, but if it is, it's it's a good book. Um, I, I think that would be a good a good start. But if, if a person is, is black and they're in a church that's not Reformed and they are Reformed, yeah. the first thing that I would tell them to do is make sure you understand what reformational theology is and the second thing you need to sit down and talk with your pastor let him know where your commitments are and if this is not something that he's interested in then you need to graciously and prayerfully start looking for a church that preaches and teaches what you are now coming to embrace because otherwise you're you're headed on a a collision course Hmm. now did did 
Did that kind of collision course happen in your own church? What happened? I mean, in you went as the pastor, so that's kind of easier because you get to do the preaching, you get to right. try to set the theologies you were explaining to us. But when you were basically explaining the good news of Jesus Christ to your people, mm-hmm. did they say, "Well, now, Pastor Ken, this sounds different than what we'd heard," or did they go, "No, that's the gospel we've always believed"? Uh, there were some who thought it was what they'd always believed, but it wasn't, and you could tell it wasn't because of what was taking place in the church. But by and large, people were discovering things for the first time. I had a lady who was about 70 years old, and uh, she went through our new members class again, and I outlined the basic doctrines of the faith. And she came to me about a a month after she sat in on the new members class. Now, she had been a member of the church for years, and she said, uh, she gave me this tape. She said, I wanted you to hear this tape because I heard this on the radio, and the preacher was talking about election and predestination, and it was the first time outside of you, that I ever heard anyone talk on election and predestination. And she said, Pastor, I've been in this church. I've been in church. I'm over 70 years old. I've been in church all of my life. Why is it that I've been in church this long and have never heard this talked about until now? I had another lady who was younger. She heard me talk about justification, and I must have preached. I'm, I, I, was, I, I used justification like leftover Thanksgiving turkey. It was in everything. I mean, any place that it would fit, I would throw in justification. And so finally she came up to me and she says, I've been hearing you talk about justification. And she said, I went back through my Bible and I went through the book of Romans. And in the Mm. book of Romans alone, the word just, justify or justification appears over 30 some odd times. She says, why is it that I know about the Romans road, but I never heard anything about justification? And people you, were discovering a new gospel. So do you think she's pretty typical of people in black churches? Her experience, yes. Yeah. To not hear sermons on justification, not hear so, intentionally doctrinal sermons. You would say in, in most historic black churches in the States, your guess would be that the gospel is not being clearly preached. Right. And that, that would be typical. Actually, that particular problem would probably be the same just across the board. Okay, among whatever, whatever. Yes. Now, the dynamics that underlie it would be a little bit different uh-huh. from in, in different situations. In other words, on a typical Sunday morning, 90% of our pulpits, you will not hear the gospel. But the reason this church won't preach the gospel may slightly differ from the reason and, and this church. Trace that out. How, how might that be? What, what would you be imagining there? Um, because in most mainstream or most uh, uh, suburban white churches or whatever, uh, the concerns are a little bit different from uh, the black church. Black church will look to its church with more of a nostalgic, romantic uh, sense of of community, uh, whereas maybe white Christians will look to... More of what have you done for me lately. (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's a mausoleum at this point, just, you know, to go and celebrate you know, bow down at the shrine of the civil rights movement, but it's or, or what it was like when I was growing up back south or down south. But but in many of our white uh, congregations, the gospel will not be there simply because they've already bought into either modernity or postmodernity in terms of the needs of man or in terms of the sovereignty of man. So there, I think there are more there are different dynamics that are are, are at work in different environments. But the end result is still no gospel. Surely one of the best things you can do to help reform a church when you come to it, like you know your church when you came to it, is simply to preach the gospel Absolutely. clearly. 
And to just do it again and again and again. Yep. Until it's coming out the ears. And people really start wondering, do you know anything else? Habidi, <laughs> <laughs> did you hear that when you, you were sharing with us earlier that you were an active Muslim for a few years, for several years, had you heard the gospel clearly before you heard it that day on television? I'd have to say no. Uh, hey, but you've been to churches before. I'd, I'd been to church, and they were all the same, uh, in my experience. I mean, you know, the pastor would open up the, the Bible without notes, without a manuscript, would find usually part of a verse, and we're lucky to get a whole verse, read that verse, close the Bible, and hoop for 20 minutes. Yeah. And, and you'd leave. What do you mean by hoop? Well, I was hoping Brother Ken would demonstrate for us. Uh, <laughs> Wait, I'm white. What do you mean by who? you got to tell me. Um, boy, let's see. Come on. Yeah. It's late. Hardly anybody listens to these interviews. Yeah, right. You guys aren't listening, are you? All the people that I know. Come on. Um, yeah, there's a particular style. I you don't do. That I do not But do. you've heard. That I have heard. You heard a lot growing up. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a style of preaching, emotional it's a sing-song approach. Uh, it requires uh, the response or participation of the audience. Oh, that can happen. <laughs> that can happen, brother. Come on. Uh-huh. Come on, kid. You're not going to do it. Come on. People want to know. Yeah, well. Inquiring yeah. minds want to know. The, all the African Americans listening to the tape will know what who. All right. All right. Well, well. Look. <laughs> All right, Ken is getting up and wiping himself here. <laughs> but that, but that was that was my experience. I mean, it was so for you, for, so to be to your experience growing up, it was more about style than gospel. a particular subject. Absolutely, yeah. it, it, absolutely. And and you were speaking earlier about you can hide a multitude of sins in, yeah. in your theology or your doctrine or your your lack of preparation or in your with style with yeah. with hooping. Yeah. And, and yeah, because it seems passionate and involved. And certainly, if that passion involved, you can't be insincere. Exactly. Or you can't be wrong, even. And in many cases, they would call it uh, the Holy Ghost coming to help. That's I feel my help coming. You know. So, are you, do, when you when you drive by large urban black churches, and let's say that they're still well attended, yeah, do you assume that most of the people in there are not converted? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, I shudder to even try to fathom the possibility of them not being converted. I, I just look at it as, as tragic. Whether, whether or not they're converted, I don't know. What the, the tragedy is, in all likelihood, they, they have not heard the gospel. But when, when you came to your church, yeah. did you assume those, I don't know, what is it, one or two hundred people yeah. sitting there? Did, did you assume that they were not converted? Yes, I did. Wow. And, and but they I, certainly thought of themselves as converted. Sure, and I never would have told them that they weren't. Okay, that's good for people to hear. Yeah, I never would have told them that. In I case they're getting suspicions right now about their own <laughs> congregation, they probably shouldn't stand up this coming Sunday morning and go, and by the way, Brother Wilson, I've been thinking on it. <laughs> I don't think you really. I, I think they had their doubts about me. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I, I never, never once implied that they, that they didn't have a genuine faith. See, what happens like, in a situation like that, the strongest people are still mentally or spiritually weak. Mm -hmm. You mean the strongest true Christians? The strongest true Christians in an environment like that are weak. They are malnourished. And so when you get them outside of their environment, you see just how weak they are, but they they look like towers of strength. Mm -hmm. 
and 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 unfortunately they they supplement their lack of theology with with guys like J Vernon McGee and 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 some other you know so you stuff that's out there at your church you began to see people converted yes i did and that led to the church actually changing yes it did um it changed first by uh reducing the numbers from about You know, we can deal with some things, but, but the Lord over the years has built the church back up, and it's a wonderful group of people. And um, I remember hearing a pastor say a number of years ago, people would ask him, uh, Are you, would you consider taking another church? And he would say, I haven't had a moving notion in years. And I, I could say the same thing about Greater Union. I miss not being there. I love preaching there. It's a wonderful place to preach. Amen. Amen. So as your church changed and as it became composed more of people who were truly converted, did that change your relationship with other neighboring black churches? They avoid me like the plague. Uh, people and churches that I've known very intimately all of my life, they literally will spit on the ground if my name is mentioned. They, they avoid me like the is plague. It, is that because they think you're judgmental and narrow? Um, I think there are some, some misnomers out there. Um, probably think I'm, I'm judgmental. I, I've re- I took the time to write a long letter to a very dear man who, who played a very important part in my life uh, because we had a couple of breakups over the years and I, I initiated trying to reconcile and the last time it just came without warning. And so I wrote him a long letter explaining my, my fondness for him, my appreciation for his family and explaining the theological path that our church was on. And I recognize, I told him, I recognize that our church is on two different levels when it comes to theology. Not one, not one better and the other one deficient, but just different. And I realize that we may not be able to fruitfully uh, worship together. But that doesn't mean that you and I can't sit down and talk because we are still men of God. We still have faith and, and we still... You know, we still have a relationship and we can talk and and maybe talk through some of these things. I wrote the letter. I saw him in a public place after I uh, had sent sent him the letter. He acknowledged that he received it. First, he tried to avoid me. And when, you know, I embarrassed myself out loud, calling on him, calling him, calling him, and he's walking away from me. And the friend that I was with said, you know, you look pitiful. Just stop it. And finally, the guy turned around and, oh, hey, you know, and, and, and he acknowledged receiving the letter. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a call. Um, I, that, I received that beautiful letter, and I'll, I'll give you a call. That was over three years ago, mm. and I still haven't heard from him. Mm. So that's the kind of treatment we get. And, and no one knows me any better than this guy. Mm. Um, that's what we get. People, I, I, I've said before that they treat me like Nic- Nicodemus came to Jesus in the cover of night. So if they have, if they want some information, they'll come to me. If they, you know, they'll 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 get some insight on this, that, and the other. But they will not own me out public uh, in, in public. Now you travel in wide enough circles that you're in a lot of uh, other churches, other than Baptist churches and mm-hmm. other than traditionally black churches. The, the problem with unconverted or people who are not converted but who think that they are that's a lot wider than just in black churches. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, the, the evangelical church in our generation is so far from the gospel. It's funny. We think that our, our roots are with, with Puritan, uh, New England Puritanism. But uh, that's our, our faith at present is so far 
from New England Puritanism that it's not even funny. In fact, the church in this generation is more um, symptomatic or, or resembles more of Charles Finney than anything else. Mm. And that's across the board. And if you, if you take a position, a theological position, that is closer to historic uh, Protestantism, then <clears throat> you will quickly become a part of the minority. So what should pastors do who are or you know, leaders in a church if they're dealing with a congregation and they feel their congregation hasn't been well taught about conversion, doesn't understand it very well, what it truly means to, to be converted, what should they do? I think if you, if you are part of a denomination that has a confession, I think you need to um, go back, to, whether it's on a Wednesday night or in your Sunday evening services, and article by article, go through your confessions of faith. And if that's and, and in addition to that, maybe even in Sunday school, go through the ecumenical creeds. Go back to the standards of the faith uh, because that, that draws out what the real issues are. So you stuff be- that's out there. At your church you began to see people converted. Yes I did. And that led to the church actually changing. Yes it did. Um, it changed first by uh, reducing the numbers from about <laughs> you know we can deal with some things but but the Lord over the years has built the church back up and it's a wonderful group of people and um, I remember hearing a pastor say a number of years ago people would ask him uh, are you would you consider taking another church? And he would say, I haven't had a moving notion in years. And I, I could say the same thing about Greater Union. I miss not being there. I love preaching there. It's a wonderful place to preach. Amen. Amen. So as your church changed and as it became composed more people who were truly converted, did that change your relationship with other neighboring black churches? They avoid me like the plague. Uh, people and churches that I've known very intimately all of my life they literally will spit on the ground if my name is mentioned. They they avoid me like the is, plague. Is that because they think you're judgmental and narrow? Um, I think there are some some misnomers out there. Um, probably think I'm I'm judgmental. I I've re- I took the time to write a long letter to a very dear man who who played a very important part in my <clears> life uh, because we had a couple of breakups over the years and I I initiated trying to reconcile and the last time it just came without warning. And so I wrote him a long letter explaining my, my fondness for him, my appreciation for his family, and explaining the theological path that our church was on. And I, recognize, I told him, I recognize that our church is on two different levels when it comes to theology. Not one, not one better and the other one deficient, but just different. And I realize that we may not be able to fruitfully uh, worship together. But that doesn't mean that you and I can't sit down and talk because we are still men of God. We still have faith and, and we still, you know, we still have a relationship and we can talk and, and maybe talk through some of these things. I wrote the letter. I saw him in a public place after I uh, had sent, sent him the letter. He acknowledged that he received it. First, he tried to avoid me. And when, you know, I embarrassed myself out loud, calling on him, calling him, calling him, and he's walking away from me. And the friend that I was with said, you know, you look pitiful. Just stop it. And finally, the guy turned around and, oh, hey, you know, and, and, and he acknowledged receiving the letter. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a call. Um, I, I received that beautiful letter and I'll, I'll give you a call. 
That was over three years ago, mm. and I still haven't heard from him. Mm. So that's the kind of treatment we get, and, and no one knows me any better than this guy. Mm. Um, that's what we get. People, I, I, I've said before that they treat me like Nic- Nicodemus came to Jesus in the cover of night. So if they, ha- if they want some information, they'll come to me. If they, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll get some insight on this, that, and the other, but they will not own me out pub- uh, in, in public. Now, you travel in wide enough circles that you're in a lot of uh, other churches other than Baptist churches and mm-hmm. other than traditionally black churches. The, the problem with unconverted or people who are not converted but who think that they are, that's a lot wider than just in black churches. Oh, without a doubt. I think uh, the, the evangelical church in our generation is so far from the gospel. It's funny. We think that our, our roots are with with Puritan, uh, New England Puritanism. But uh, that's our, our faith at present is so far from New England Puritanism that it's not even funny. In fact, the church in this generation is more um, symptomatic or, or resembles more of Charles Finney than anything else. Mm. And that's across the board. And if you, if you take a position, a theological position, that is closer to historic... Uh, Protestantism, then you will quickly become a part of the minority. So what should pastors do who are, or, you know, leaders in a church if they're dealing with a congregation and they feel their congregation hasn't been well taught about conversion, doesn't understand it very well, what it truly means to, to be converted, what should they do? I think if you, if you are part of a denomination that has a confession, I think you need to um, go back whether it's on a Wednesday night or in your Sunday evening services, and article by article, go through your confessions of faith. And if that's and, and in addition to that, maybe even in Sunday school, go through the ecumenical creeds, go back to the standards of the faith, uh, because that that draws out what the real issues are. So, what are some of the common errors you see churches making, black and white? I mean, just any churches evangelical churches making today in evangelism? Um, Defining evangelism by a result Mm. uh, rather than a message. Mm. Evangelism is the intentional sharing of the gospel. It's not getting people to respond. Um, I think also they have been, uh, I, I think they put way too much stock in getting America's attention through bad tracks rather than developing uh, good habits within the community and real relationships, mm. either on the job or in the community. We've, been, we've allowed the evangelism of the church to be driven by parachurch organizations that are intentionally um, non-committal mm-hmm. when it comes to the, uh, theology because they don't want to offend anyone. Yeah. And, and that has, uh, and we've been results uh, driven, and that's that's a big part, and that's why people will call a successful church a church that has has reached, you know, that that has ten thousand responses. And uh, I, I shared recently that if you were to take uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost and Stephen, and you say, well, which one of these brothers was an effective evangelist? Um, well, we would say ordinarily we would say Peter. Because he preached and 3,000 people were saved. Stephen preached and it got him killed. But if you look at their messages, it's the same message. Mm -hmm. So they were equally effective 
And God does use our voice sometimes to harden the hearts of, of those that he will condemn. And I think sometimes he uses pers- uh, persuasive evangelists so that they can have no excuse in the day of judgment. And he will not turn their hearts and he will not give them grace, but they have still equally received the message of grace. So your advice for evangelism to pastors listening would be to preach the gospel clearly in your sermons, as you said, build per- personal relationships in your community, um, any kind of more deliberate evangelistic literature or activities or meetings that you would have? Well, see, this is where we are presently in our church. Uh-huh. And what we're trying to do is we're developing a flow according to the gifts that are present, and we're not looking for someone's prepackaged uh, formula for Okay, success. so tell me about the gifts that are present just briefly as an example for greater union so that pastors listening could then read. Well, okay, then in our church, maybe it would be like this. For one thing, one of the uh, the gifts that are uh, that are present. That's why we're doing the ESL. We have a young English lady. Is a second language. Yes, we have a young lady who's taught that in uh, school districts in the area. So now she's gonna she's reaching uh, that audience or that area in, uh, around the church. As a result, we we sent out uh, invitations, and they were able uh, the people that went out passing out the invitations were able to interact with several Spanish speaking people around the church. Um, giving more exposure to the church, uh, answering questions, and now they will be coming to the church. I don't even know what the number is, but they'll be coming to the church for these classes, and that opens up another opportunity. But that's just one. As you as you you find out where people's interests lie, and you find out where their gifts are. Okay. What about practice of church membership? Yes. When you came to Greater Union, how many members were there, sort of on the books? A little more. Yeah, it was and probably. How many over people 200. were attending? Uh, we would well, actually, I would say on the books there were probably 300 or so on the books, but we would see uh, over 200 people in worship. Presumably, one of the things you've done during your time there is uh, work on the church membership. Yes. On people's understanding of membership and your practice of it. Yes, I had a lady who hadn't been in church in over three years. We were at a funeral, and she was talking about, well, you know, you guys are still my church. <laughs> said, what place can you show up once every three years and still be considered a regular there? Mm. No, you're not a member. Oh, yes, I am. I haven't changed membership. Well, you changed membership when you stopped coming. I don't know where your membership (laughs) is now, but you're not a member here because you haven't been. You can't uh, leave uh, leave for work in the morning and show up three years later and expect the key to fit. (laughs) (laughs) So we have some... surprised some people, and they found out they weren't members of the church, but um, it's, it's been really to the benefit of the church. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, again, that's a problem that's probably typical that's shared between churches that are largely black and white. Yes. Uh, at least on evangelical churches, because there's been a, a sloppiness with church membership. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, either getting people to make a commitment to join, or once they've joined, show a commitment to the church. Yeah. Yeah, that loose affiliation with church. And so what advice would you give a pastor about trying to work on that? Uh, one of the things that we did was we encouraged, when we, I developed a new member's curriculum, and we encouraged old members to take the class. Well, that's good. And in that class, we broke it down. What, it, what does it mean to be Protestant? What does it mean to be, uh, no, what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be Baptist? What does it mean to be um, a member of the church? And just sort of explain the dynamics of the church member relationship. And we had many of our older members that were discovering 
their responsibilities to the church from a biblical perspective, really for the first time. And that I think that helped a lot. And we're still trying to encourage older members to, to go through the new members class. And now you're seeing a lot of people in your church who are evidently truly converted and they're growing in Christ. Yeah, as far as I can tell. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's hugely encouraging. And do you see other churches like that around when you go to conferences and when you go preaching elsewhere? Um, yes. As a matter of fact, the Lord has used our church. I, I described us uh, years ago as a tugboat, uh, a little boat that's been used to bring in some big ones off the waters. And uh, we've, we've helped some, some larger churches go through transition uh, in, in terms of incorporating the doctrines of grace. And he's used the church in a wonderful way because it's across denominational lines and ethnic lines. Mm. You know, we've, we've been able to assist uh, white churches, Presbyterian churches. Uh, in fact, one of the churches that I, I worked with the pastor for a number of years as we work through these doctrines, uh, he will be accepted uh, into the United Reformed Church. And they started off as in, uh, just an EV everything or an evangelical everything kind of church. And, and now they are being received into the uh, United Reformed Church. And if pastors want to contact you to say, hey, brother, could you talk to me maybe some about how I could work with my church? How could they contact you? Uh, they can give us a call at the church. Uh, the office number is 310 area code 639-5430. And they can call and leave a message, and uh, I would get back with them as soon as possible. Do you actually practice discipline, church discipline in your church? Yes, we do, uh, which is also unusual among evangelicals. But we we do practice discipline. Uh, is that more elders. typical, you think, among black churches? No, it's, it's across the board. Just not typical of anybody? Yeah, nobody likes to practice discipline. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's hard as National Baptists to practice discipline at the local level when... At the higher levels, they don't. And I know that in a you're a Baptist church, and you've got elders. I think you've got one yes. of your elders in the room right now. Yes, I do. Uh, how many elders do you have? He counts for about three right there, but we, we actually have uh, three elders apart from myself. Okay. And did your church have elders when you came? No, they didn't. Was it difficult leading them to come to understand the Bible's teaching about elders? Um, Not when you put Kenny up there. I mean, he just told them and they agreed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, he says it. That pretty much settles it. But, no, it, it took a while. I, it, it really came with the teaching. Uh -huh. Once we examine the different models of the church as, as it's practiced, in, in, you know, among evangelicals, and then we look at the biblical base for those particular models, people began to see that, wait a minute, you know, yeah, we're, we're talking about categories that are non-biblical because in most of our, uh, especially in our black churches, you have pastor, deacon, and then you have this whole group called associate ministers where there's no category for it. <laughs> right. And so what's what's an associate minister? And, and these guys oh, were Wait, I, have you been an associate minister at the meeting? I have not. Okay. I, yeah, I, have been, I have been in churches where you have this throng so you know of an associate ministers. Minister Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so you say, well, okay, what is he in training for? Is he in right. training to be a pastor? Right. Or is he in training just to be an elder? Right. What's he in training for? Well, there's no biblical category for that. Right. They say, okay, well, he's an evangelist. Okay, if that's what you want to call it, and that's where we hide everything that we can't explain. Yeah. That's how they. That's where they they hid women preachers for years right. under the category of evangelists. Well, okay, we don't we can't explain that. So she's an evangelist. Um, so the elders, the office of elder, 
made it much clearer. We, now we do recognize the preaching gifts of other men in the congregation, but they realize that they don't have a position of authority in the church. And one of the things that I wanted to get rid of was the notion that if something happens to the pastor, the next person in charge is the chairman of the deacon board. Mm-hmm. So you say Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5... Exactly, elders. Yeah. Elders. And Tabiti, you started a church down in Raleigh, North Carolina, didn't you? Yes. And did you guys have elders? We did. We now, did. again, was this unusual for a black church to have elders? Yes. Yes, in, in, in our experience and in that region. Uh, we, we, were, we were all largely coming out of Baptist uh, congregations where uh, there were deacons, uh-huh. uh, a cadre of ministers, associate ministers, uh, sometimes trustees, which yeah. are also this interesting kind of group of folks. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and so you had this real tension. But, and in a lot of places though, uh, in terms of the governance of the church, I mean, it was, it was kind of de facto pastor says. Uh, so there wasn't a sense of, even where the, there was some, some elders, a plurality of elders. It's not that way at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Tabiti. It is not that way at Capitol Hill <laughs> Baptist Church. You sit in an elders meeting, you'll find out the truth in that. <laughs> yeah, but it was, you know, uh, kind of practically speaking, pastor hears from God, uh, whatever pastor says, that's, that's kind of how we line up and where we go. And Ken, your church isn't run that way? Sort of, but what I've, I've intentionally sort of uh, spread the authority among the elders. Do they get opportunities to teach God's word publicly? Oh, yes. Yes. And you think that builds up their authority in the congregation? Yes. And, um, you know, I know there are competing views in terms of whether or not when you have the plurality of elders, if it's the first among equals or if there is truly a, a distinct office of senior pastor, which I would call the bishop, as, as it's uh, referred to in Titus. But um, I, I, still, with that being the, the, the cause uh, or, you know, that being there, we, we still I, I think it's, it's for the benefit of the church that we recognize the plurality of elders so that. All power and authority doesn't rest with a single person. I want to see any other particular things be useful for us to think about, about the special situations that black churches find themselves well, in. Well, I wanted to touch on something that Thabiti mentioned uh, growing up in, in, the, in the Baptist church and then uh, seeing the, uh, the strong male presence in the Nation of Islam. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles and uh, the, the Nation of Islam would drive through our neighborhood and they would find young men like myself standing out and they would pick us up and take us to the mosque. And I never will forget the impression that was made on me when I walked into the mosque and I saw that strong male dignity. Right. And you go to our churches and you have such a feminized male group where they're flopping around and, and acting like women or just the absence of men, period. Right. And, and it, was, it, it does make a very strong influence. And I think in certain parts of the country, um, places like Chicago, New York, they have, they have really cleaned up where the black church has failed yes. in developing strong, godly men. Absolutely. One of the things that I love about our church is that the men are men, and there's no question about it. That's and I don't good. mean they're chauvinists. Yeah, I hear you. They're men. They're men who love the Lord, and they're not afraid to be masculine. Any comment on music? No, because that gets me in trouble. <laughs> Six <laughs> minutes is enough. Go ahead. Come enough. on. Get in trouble just for a second. I told you again, nobody listens to this. You can say whatever you want. Music, um, I think in the first place that um, 
the music is not neutral. Because there is, there is a nuance in, in particular groups. And, and, and part of the, the reforming process is to first, I mean, it, well, it includes um, the music. It, it includes reforming the music, which means first looking at the content. So I went through our hymnal and I just deleted all of the bad hymns. You mentioned the National Baptist hymnal. That thing is just, oh, that thing is horrible. But the hymns in there, the, the ones that are good, are very good. I think you have to first check it in terms of content. Now, in, in the black church, this is where you really get some get, get in some hot water because the, the black choir has long been the tail that wags the dog in the black church. And again, theology will be overlooked. You know, a lot of bad theology will be overlooked if you have a choir that can bring it. Mm-hmm. And so they are oftentimes just looked at, uh, you look at Foreigner and, and a lot of uh, uh, rock bands and groups have used black choirs to back them up simply because they can, they can get it done. And that's one of the great challenges in our church, mm-hmm. not only reforming the theology, but also changing the dynamic, the, the entertainment dynamic and the emotional flavor of that, of, of that choir and bringing it under submission to the doctrine. And I think we've been able to do that without losing our identity. So if you hear our choir sing, you heard our choir sing. They do. Uh, they still have, they sound like a black choir, mm-hmm. but they don't, they don't rock, they don't clap, they don't, you know, they just sing. They just sing to the Ken, glory of God. what is wrong with clapping? Well, nothing is wrong with clapping if you feel led to clap. But when you start saying, okay, everybody stand and clap, you know, I can go to somewhere else and get that. Yeah. Well, I don't need you to orchestrate my emotion. Okay, one, one last topic I want us to take time for. Oh, there's a lot more. Well, we've said some of this. In uh, a, a lot of black churches are in areas that are poor. Yes. Do local congregations have responsibility, social responsibility? I know Christians do. Sure. No question about that. Do, do local congregations, does Greater Union Baptist Church have a particular social responsibility for Compton or for its area of Compton? Because you, you just said that you let yeah. other churches do that. Yeah, I, I think to some degree we, we do as a congregation, but that doesn't mean that we have to do it on our own. Because if we have a commitment to help feed some people that need to be fed and you have someone else down the street who's doing a great job, then why can't we support them in feeding? So, yes, we do have an obligation because at that point they are our neighbors. You know, the poor people around us are our neighbors. And and individually as well as collectively, we do have a responsibility to do what we can to help our neighbors. Now, once they are settled in the neighborhood and you see that they all they want is to use you, I, I think we do have a responsibility to exercise discretion. And I don't think we have to be emotionally blackmailed into giving handouts just because people are asking for it. Well, and Paul specifically says in Second Thessalonians that if they will not work, they should not eat. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Tabidi, you work on this kind of topic all the time. Anything you want to say about this as far as the role of the church? Just that I think, well, I guess a question, uh, and I think it's implied in your statement, though, but would you say that this is part of the church's primary mission? No. This quest, right? No, it's not. No, and I would agree also, no. Right. And and that's where the black church has has really been stigmatized by the civil rights movement. Our elders are just thinking about this a lot right now because of stuff, you know, some of the brothers in our church who have started a homelessness feeding Ministry And as we've been thinking about it and praying about it, one resource that we found that well expressed what we thought Scripture taught is the Enduring Community book published by Les Newsom and um, Habig. 
Yeah, Reformed University Press. The chapter in there distinguishing the kingdom of God from the church uh, is very useful in saying, look, the church is here to preach the gospel. Exactly. That is our role. If we start doing just everything that's good for Christians to do, you'll lose what the church is here about. Now, Christians, yeah, from Jesus' teaching, it's very clear we should be involved mm-hmm. in helping those who are poor even beyond our own church community. But the church has a particular responsibility and commission from God to teach the gospel. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. Everything else, someone else can do, and some of them can even do it better. Yeah. But the one thing that no one else can do in the community is preach the gospel. Yeah. And with that, we're going to have to close it up. Thank you guys so much for being here. Ken, thank you for being here. I know it's been a, a good, long day for you, brother, and you've got more to come, Lord willing. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. May the Lord continue to bless things at Greater Union Baptist Church. God established the church as a display of his glory amidst a world of human sin and suffering. Sadly, we too often see that display obscured when the church follows the dictates of cultural trends and faithless methodological pragmatism. Yet we believe that the church can again convey God's splendor in local church life. To that end, Nine Marks Ministry's primary mission is to equip and encourage local churches in the application of biblical principles. You can learn more about our mission and what the Nine Marks are by visiting our website at www.ninemarks.org. On this website, you'll gain access to literature, online instruction, and audio resources. Again, the web address is www.9marks.org. You may also contact us toll-free at 888-543-1030 or write us at 9 Marks Ministries, 525 A Street Northeast, Washington, D.C., 2002. Thank you for listening and for your prayerful support.